Section six of Volume one D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume one D, section six. Chapter thirty eight, part six. The Queen of Scots, destitute of all force, possessing a narrow revenue, surrounded with a factious, turbulent nobility, a bigoted people, and insolent ecclesiastics, soon found that her only expedient for maintaining tranquillity was to preserve a good correspondence with Elizabeth, who by former connections and services had acquired such authority over all these ranks of men. Soon after her arrival in Scotland, Secretary Liddington was sent to London, in order to pay her compliments to the Queen, and express her desire of friendship and a good correspondence. And he received a commission from her, as well as from the nobility of Scotland, to demand, as a means of cementing this friendship, that Mary should, by act of Parliament or by proclamation, for the difference between these securities was not then deemed very considerable, be declared successor to the Crown. No request could be more unreasonable, or made at a more improper juncture. The Queen replied that Mary had once discovered her intention not to wait for the succession, but had openly, without ceremony or reserve, assumed the title of Queen of England, and had pretended a superior right to her throne and kingdom, that through her ambassadors and those of her husband, the French king, had signed a treaty in which they renounced that claim, and promised satisfaction for so great an indignity. She was so intoxicated with this imaginary right, that she had rejected the most earnest solicitations, and even as some endeavoured to persuade her, had incurred some danger in crossing the seas, rather than ratify that equitable treaty, that her partisans everywhere had still the assurance to insist on her title, and had presumed to talk of her own birth as illegitimate, that while affairs were on this footing, while a claim thus openly made, so far from being openly renounced, was only suspended till a more favourable opportunity. It would in her be the most egregious imprudence to fortify the hands of a pretender to her crown, by declaring her the successor. That no expedient could be worse imagined for cementing friendship than such a declaration, and kings were often found to bear no good will to their successors, even though their own children much more when the connection was less intimate, and when such cause of disgust and jealousy had already been given, and indeed was still continued on the part of Mary, that though she was willing, from the amity which she bore her kinswoman, to ascribe her former pretensions to the advice of others, by whose direction she was then governed, her present refusal to relinquish them could proceed only from her own prepossessions, and was a proof that she still harboured 
some dangerous designs against her that it was the nature of all men to be disgusted with the present to entertain flattering views of futurity to think their services ill rewarded to expect a better recompense from the successor and she should esteem herself scarcely half a sovereign over the english if they saw her declare her heir and arm her rival with authority against her own repose and safety that she knew the inconstant nature of the people she was acquainted with the present divisions in religion she was not ignorant that the same party which expected greater favour during the reign of mary did also imagine that the title of that princess was superior to her own that for her part whatever claims were advanced she was determined to live and die queen of england and after her death it was the business of others to examine who had the best pretensions either by the laws or by right of blood to the succession that she hoped the claim of the queen of scots would then be found solid and considering the injury which she herself had received it was sufficient indulgence if she promised in the meantime to do nothing which might in any respect weaken or invalidate it and that mary if her title were really preferable a point which for her own part she had never inquired into possessed all advantages above her rivals who destitute both of present power and of all support by friends would only expose themselves to inevitable ruin by advancing any weak or even doubtful pretensions these views of the queen were so prudent and judicious that there was no likelihood of her ever departing from them but that she might put the matter to a fuller proof she offered to explain the words of the treaty of edinburgh so as to leave no suspicion of their excluding mary's right of succession and in this form she again required her to ratify that treaty matters at last came to this issue that mary agreed to the proposal and offered to renounce all present pretensions to the crown of england provided elizabeth would agree to declare her the successor but such was the jealous character of this latter princess that she never would consent to strengthen the interest and authority of any claimant by fixing the succession much less would she make this concession in favour of a rival queen who possessed such plausible pretensions for the present and who though she might verbally renounce them could easily resume her claim on the first opportunity mary's proposal however bore so specious an appearance of equity and justice that elizabeth sensible that reason would by superficial thinkers be deemed to lie entirely on that side made no more mention of the matter and though further concessions were never made by either princess they put on all the appearances of a cordial reconciliation and friendship with each other the queen observed that even without her interposition mary was sufficiently depressed by the mutinous spirit of her own subjects and instead of giving scotland for the present any inquietude or disturbance she employed herself more usefully and laudably 
in regulating the affairs of her own kingdom and promoting the happiness of her people she made some progress in paying those great debts which lay upon the crown she regulated the coin which had been much debased by her predecessors she furnished her arsenals with great quantities of arms from germany and other places engaged her nobility and gentry to imitate her example in this particular introduced into the kingdom the art of making gunpowder and brass cannon fortified her frontiers on the side of scotland made frequent reviews of the militia encouraged agriculture by allowing a free exportation of corn promoted trade and navigation and so much increased the shipping of her kingdom both by building vessels of force herself and suggesting like undertakings to the merchants that she was justly styled the restorer of naval glory and the queen of the northern seas the natural frugality of her temper so far from incapacitating her for these great enterprises only enabled her to execute them with greater certainty and success and all the world saw in her conduct the happy effects of a vigorous perseverance in judicious and well-concerted projects it is easy to imagine that so great a princess who enjoyed such singular felicity and renown would receive proposals of marriage from every one that had any likelihood of succeeding and though she had made some public declarations in favour of a single life few believed that she would persevere for ever in that resolution the archduke charles second son of the emperor as well as casimir son of the elector palatine made applications to her and as this latter prince professed the reformed religion he thought himself on that account better entitled to succeed in his addresses eric king of sweden and adolf duke of holstein were encouraged by the same views to become suitors and the earl of arran heir to the crown of scotland was by the states of that kingdom recommended to her as a suitable marriage even some of her own subjects though they did not openly declare their pretensions entertained hopes of success the earl of arundel a person declining in years but descended from an ancient and noble family as well as possessed of great riches flattered himself with this prospect as did also sir william pickering a man much esteemed for his personal merit but the person most likely to succeed was a younger son of the late duke of northumberland lord robert dudley who by means of his exterior qualities joined to address and flattery had become in a manner her declared favourite and had great influence in all her councils the less worthy he appeared of this distinction the more was his great favour ascribed to some violent affection which could thus seduce the judgment of this penetrating princess and men long expected that he would obtain the preference above so many princes and monarchs but the queen gave all these suitors a gentle refusal which still encouraged their pursuit 
and thought that she should the better attach them to her interest, if they were still allowed to entertain hopes of succeeding in their pretensions. It is also probable that this policy was not entirely free from a mixture of female coquetry, and that, though she was determined in her own mind never to share her power with any man, she was not displeased with the courtship, solicitation, and professions of love, which the desire of acquiring so valuable a prize procured her from all quarters. What is most singular in the conduct and character of Elizabeth is, that though she determined never to have any heir of her own body, she was not only very averse to fix any successor to the crown, but seems also to have resolved, as far as it lay in her power, that no one who had pretensions to the succession should ever have any heirs or successors. If the exclusion given by the will of Henry the Eighth to the posterity of Margaret, Queen of Scotland, was allowed to be valid, the right to the crown devolved on the House of Suffolk, and the Lady Catherine Grey, younger sister to the Lady Jane, was now the heir of that family. This lady had been married to Lord Herbert, son of the Earl of Pembroke, but having been divorced from that nobleman, she had made a private marriage with the Earl of Hereford, son of the Protector, and her husband, soon after consummation, travelled into France. In a little time she appeared to be pregnant, which so enraged Elizabeth that she threw her into the tower and summoned Hartford to appear, in order to answer for his misdemeanour. He made no scruple of acknowledging the marriage, which, though concluded without the Queen's consent, was entirely suitable to both parties, and for this offence he was also committed to the Tower. Elizabeth's severity stopped not here. She issued a commission to inquire into the matter, and as Hartford could not, within the time limited, prove the nuptials by witnesses, the commerce between him and his consort was declared unlawful, and their posterity illegitimate. They were still detained in custody, but by bribing their keepers they found means to have further intercourse, and another child appeared to be the fruit of their commerce. This was a fresh source of vexation to the Queen, who made a fine of fifteen thousand pounds be set on Hartford by the Star Chamber, and ordered his confinement to be thenceforth more rigid and severe. He lay in this condition for nine years till the death of his wife, by freeing Elizabeth from all fears, procured him his liberty. This extreme severity must be accounted for, either by the unrelenting jealousy of the Queen, who was afraid lest a pretender to the succession should acquire credit by having issue, or by her malignity, which, with all her great qualities, made one ingredient in her character, and which led her to envy in others those natural pleasures of love and posterity, of which her own ambition and desire of dominion made her renounce all prospect for herself. 
there happened about this time some other events in the royal family where the queen's conduct was more laudable arthur pole and his brother nephews to the late cardinal and descended from the duke of clarence together with antony fortescue who had married a sister of these gentlemen and some other persons were brought to their trial for intending to withdraw into france with a view of soliciting succours from the duke of guise of returning thence into wales and of proclaiming mary queen of england and arthur pole duke of clarence they confessed the indictment but asserted that they never meant to execute these projects during the queen's lifetime they had only deemed such precautions requisite in case of her demise which some pretenders to judicial astrology had assured them they might with certainty look for before the year expired they were condemned by the jury but received a pardon from the queen's clemency end of section six chapter thirty eight part six